And please do turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66. We are, as mentioned earlier, taking a bit of a break from our study of John. We'll actually get back to John in January. Um, Between now and then, we're going to spend a few weeks looking at the place, the position, the importance of God's Word in our life as believers, and then look at the application of that Word to several areas of concern within our culture. And if you want to know a little more about that, you can look in the Pastor's Word in the bulletin this morning, and I kind of line out where we are headed over the next several weeks. But this morning... We're in Isaiah chapter 66. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering is like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways. And their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. Isaiah 66 is the conclusion of Isaiah's great prophecy warning Israel of their peril in rejecting God. Repeatedly, he has warned them that judgment is coming But most of them have not listened. Isaiah 65, verse 2, he says, All day long I have stood with my hands out to an obstinate people who walk in ways that are not good, pursuing their own imaginations. So judgment is coming. And yet in the midst of that judgment, if you know Isaiah at all, there is the promise of a Savior. Perhaps more than anything else, Isaiah is known for that promise from the promise of his birth in Isaiah 7 the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son to his suffering and death for our sins in Isaiah 53 he was wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities Isaiah more than any other prophet shines the light of the promise of the coming of Christ upon his face of Jesus but that's not all that Isaiah promises here. Far from it, in fact. Throughout this book, he holds out his hands to offer Israel the mercy of God in repentance and restoration if they will but listen to God's promise of mercy, repent of their sins, and return to Him with their whole heart, they will be restored through God's grace. 
And so here at the conclusion of this prophecy, Isaiah makes a final appeal for them to hear the word of the Lord, to turn from their sin of going their own way and to humbly place their trust in Him for the promised Messiah. Let me tell you, this is a message that is incredibly relevant for us today. And so let's prepare our hearts to hear Isaiah's word. Father, here we are in your presence. We could waste this time, these next few minutes, by having our minds drift and refusing to give ear to the word that you have given us. And we would face the consequences of that. Or we can hear your word. And Lord, to do that, we need the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would awaken minds and hearts from the oldest to the youngest. You'd give us an attentiveness to everything you say with a readiness to believe and obey you. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So looking at Isaiah's message here, the first thing I want us to see is that the sovereign Lord has spoken a word here that we need to hear. Chapter 66, verse 1 begins with those words, Thus says the Lord. And notice how Isaiah begins his message. Thus says the Lord. He does not say, well, this is what I think about this. Or, this is my opinion on this matter. No, he thunders, thus says the Lord. In fact, 34 times in Isaiah, this phrase will be used. 417 times in Scripture we hear it. For the prophets were not giving us their opinion on these matters, just one more human view among others. They, like Isaiah, were giving us the very words of God Himself. First, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter says, Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I mean, do you understand? This is what we're dealing with as we open God's Word. This is what the Bible claims to itself, not to be the words of man about God, but to be God's very Word to man. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, one translation says. All Scripture is breathed out by God, another translation says. 2 Timothy 3.16 The word in Greek is theopnoist. And it means literally exhaled by Him. It's come out of His mouth. So that what we encounter in the voice of the prophet or the apostle or the teacher of God's Word who opens God's Word, what we encounter there does not carry the mere authority of men and institutions but the very weight and authority of the sovereign God Himself. As Wayne Grudem has said, all the words of Scripture are God's words. Consequently, to disbelieve and disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve and disobey God. That is the fundamental conviction behind our understanding of inspiration. That God has spoken and this is His Word. And if God has spoken and this is His Word, then that Word carries His full authority over our lives. And we are bound by it. We will be judged by it. So who is this God who speaks here? Notice how He describes Himself. Again, verse 1 and 2, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Surely you'll notice that is a statement of God's absolute sovereignty. Look around, he says. You see these heavens high above your head, that that myriad of stars and galaxies spinning so far beyond your control, immensity beyond your imagination. I mean, have have you seen some of the images coming back from the new James Webb telescope? They're all over the Internet. Don't look them up now, but later do. They're amazing. The vastness, the the beauty, the distance beyond comprehension. God says, look at all that. That is nothing more than my chair where I sit down to rule the universe. (laughs) And the earth? This earth that you fret and worry over because it seems so big and overwhelming and complex, God says, that's my footstool. That's where I prop up my feet when I sit down to rule this universe. These things that you are so impressed with and worry over are just the furniture in my palace where I rule. Okay, what's the point of that? Well, at the time this was written, Israel was obsessing about the temple. That was the place where God dwells. And and, and we, His people, we have to provide for Him there. He, He needs what we do to have a place to rest and a place from which to rule. He needs us to provide for Him. Now, where would they get such an idea? Well, that was the common view of the pagan nations around them. For instance, in the myths of Baal, Baal, um, this was a great quest of that God. Baal needed someone to build a house for him so he'd have a place to rest and rule. And so he recruited people to serve him. You know, there's just something in us that makes us think that we can serve God in a way that puts Him at our disposal. That He needs our service in some way. But what is God saying here? I don't need you. I don't need your service I don't need your temple. Why? Verse 2, because there's nothing in all creation that I myself did not make. Everything that exists owes its existence to me. So so, so what are you going to give me that I don't already own? Paul says the same thing in Acts 17, speaking to the Athenians. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God does not need your stuff. But oh, how you need Him. God is not dependent upon you or me for anything. But how dependent are we on Him. And so you got to get that relationship right. You're the needy one in this relationship. Not Him. Because God is absolutely absolute in His sovereignty. He is absolute in His independence, in His majesty, in His contentment. He needs nothing. Because He Himself is the fountain from which all good things flow. 
And, and so Christian, or, or, or anyone hearing my voice, stop trying to give to Him in a way that will put Him in your debt and instead come humbly to receive from Him what He's graciously promised to give. Which brings us into this next thing. And that is to understand it, to whom then does God promise to give? Second major thing this morning, God's favor, God's gracious favor rests on those who humble themselves to submit to His Word with great reverence. Second part of verse 2, it says, but this is the one to whom I'll look, right? Not the one who's out there doing for me as though he thinks he's putting me in his debt. No, this is the one to whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So, so to whom does God look with favor? That's what this means. To whom does God look with favor? Who is it that will receive God's kind and gracious attention? Because I want to be in that group. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. So the focus of God's attention here is not on the stars and the galaxies and the supernova. That's not what He's impressed with. But those who humbly, contritely receive His word. Look at that first. We're told that God's gracious eye of favor is fixed on the humble. The humble, not the proud, not the arrogant, not the selfie posting, hey, look at me, aren't I something crowd? But the humble. Acts James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. He's against the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Who are the humble? The word Isaiah uses here means the lowly, the poor in spirit, the the spiritual have-nots. Same thing Jesus says in Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. It means that they know they don't have anything to offer God. They don't come to God with gifts in hand saying, Lord, reward me. They come like the tax collector in Jesus' parable. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have nothing to give to you and everything to gain from you. And so they humbly refuse to exalt themselves. They will not make much of themselves. They come empty, willing to be filled by Him so that they can make much of Christ. Is that you this morning? Are you happiest when all eyes are on Him? Or do you demand that some of those eyes be on you? Is it important to you that you be acknowledged by others, that you get the credit for your contribution? Or or, or do you recognize that you brought nothing to the table but the sin that needs to be forgiven? God gives grace to the humble. He looks upon the humble, those humbled by His gospel. Second, God's gracious eye, we're told, His gracious eye of favor rests on those who are contrite in spirit. Now the word is broken in spirit. Literally, lame in spirit. It's the idea of having no power whatsoever. No ability to accomplish anything for yourself. It's the same word uh, that is used in 2 Samuel of Mephibosheth, King Saul's crippled grandson. He's lame. He's broken. He's powerless. Someone has to do everything for him. 
He's got nothing to offer David when David ascends to the throne as king. In fact, by the thinking of the day, because he was the grandson of Saul and the heir apparent as the other ones had died off, probably David should have executed him. That's what was expected. But when David finds him, if you remember the story, Mephibosheth throws himself upon the king's mercy and David grants him grace and begins to treat him as a son. That's the idea here. We come to God broken by our sin. Confessing that we have nothing to commend ourselves to God with. We realize that our sin has so debilitated us, so devastated us, we can't do anything to fix it. We can't do anything to save ourselves. And so we throw ourselves upon Him for mercy with repentance, turning from all self-reliance to trust only in Him. As David himself found out, you remember Psalm 51 as he confesses his horrible sins with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. He says, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. If there's anything I could do, I would bring it. You are not pleased with my burnt offerings. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. For the arrogant, this is horrible news. Because he won't accept anything from your hand given in arrogance. For those broken by their sin, for you who are wondering, is there forgiveness for me? Have I sinned too far? I've gone too much. He will not despise the broken. The broken and contrite heart, He will not despise. So to whom does God look with favor? He looks first to the humble, we're told. Because they know they can do nothing for Him. And He looks to the contrite in spirit because they know they deserve nothing from Him. And therefore third, we're told, They tremble at His Word. This is the heart of the whole passage. God's gracious favor rests on who? Those who tremble at His Word. Tremble! Tremble! What does that bring to mind? Fear! Right? Anxiety! Reverence! Trembling is an aspect of the fear of God. Indeed, it's a byproduct of seeing God in all of His majesty. Psalm 96 verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. That holiness that sent Isaiah to the ground saying, Woe is me! Tremble before Him all the earth. Worship with trembling. Those who tremble are those who come to God with, 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 with reverential fear to worship Him. And those who come to Him with that attitude will revere His Word. 1 Samuel 12, verse 14 says, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well with you because He's receiving you. Because you're in that group He receives. Trembling. Uh, Trembling is the opposite of flippancy. You don't tremble at something that you're casual about. It's no big deal to you. You don't tremble when it's no big deal. Someone offers you cotton candy, you're like, I'm not going to tremble at that. You tremble at something that is weighty and serious, something that's a threat. You know, if you were driving along your car and got to the bridge and the bridge gave out and the water rushed by and you barely missed it, you're going to tremble for probably 30 minutes. 
something big and powerful hanging over your head. Uh, This Hebrew word uh, can even picture what we would call a panic attack, this deep sense of anxiety. In Samuel 4.13, we're told that Eli, the old priest, trembled at the thought that the ark of God might be lost when his sons took it into battle. He's anxious about it because it represented the presence of God in their midst and God's promises. It was where God met with them in those days and spoke with them. The thought of losing access to God, the thought of losing the assurance of His presence gave Eli a panic attack. And when they did lose the ark in battle, you remember, when he hears the news, he drops over dead. To tremble at God's Word is to fear its neglect. It's a visceral response. More than just an intellectual commitment. It's a a deep emotional sense of reverence. Why? Because it's God's Word. This majestic God speaks here. This majestic God before whom we will all stand speaks and we are obligated by what He says and must listen and obey. This Word carries His absolute authority. When I open this book, it's like I'm standing in God's very throne room hearing Him speak. Have you ever thought about it that way? You get up for your morning devotions. God is speaking here. I mean, what would you do? First thing tomorrow morning, God summoned you directly into His throne room and spoke to you with His thunderous voice in your presence. What would you... I think the first thing you would do is wet yourself. I really do. And then you'd tremble. As Job did. As Isaiah did. You'd tremble with an anxious desire to hear everything God said and to make sure you got it right and be ready to obey His commands every single word. That's what this phrase, to tremble at God's Word means. It is an an, an attitude of reverence where you are giving God in His Word your full attention because you do recognize it as God's Word and you're responding to it as you would respond to Him. You understand that to refuse to hear it is to refuse to hear Him. To be casual toward it is to be casual toward Him. To disregard and ignore it is to disregard and ignore Him. To defy and disobey it is to defy and disobey Him. And that's why, first word of application to this point, God's Word must carry for us the same weight of reverential fear that we give Him. We honor Him by honoring His Word. We center our lives on Him by centering them around His Word. That that means that we read it. Deuteronomy 17.19 even says that the king must write down God's law and read it so that he will fear God. We read it, we memorize it, we study it and sing it and share it and obey it and treasure it. Do you treasure God's Word? Do you see and feel its great value so that you are at pains to make sure you're getting it into your life? You want to get it into your mind so that it shapes how you think about everything. You want to get it into your heart so that it forms how you feel about all this stuff spinning around so that you know that you love what God loves and reject what God hates. That's what trembling at God's Word is. It's an an attitude of reverence by which we receive and treasure and obey what He says. I was thinking about this um, this past summer when I took a retreat and I, 
I took out a pen just during my devotional time and wrote this down for myself, but I'm going to share it with you now. I said a genuine, a genuine reverence for God's Word means honoring it as God's Word, submitting to it as God's own voice, obeying it as God's express will, studying it as God's faithful instruction, searching it out as God's hidden treasure, trusting it as God's heart on display for us, fearing to forsake it as God's gracious warnings, learning from it as God's self-revelation, clinging to it as God's means of salvation, trembling before it as the thunder of God's judgment, letting it shape our thoughts and values as the expression of God's good character and His perfect will for our lives. It is an attitude toward God's Word where not only do we believe that it is true, but we hold it in the highest esteem. Which is the second point of application for this point. That is, to understand then that the authority of God's Word must be given a high place in our lives, the highest possible place, in order to rule our lives, our opinions, and our emotions. Here, I think, is the critical question. What is God's Word to you? What is your attitude toward it? Test yourself. Be honest. Is it merely a book of ancient wisdom that you glean from time to time for a little inspiration and guidance? Or are these the very words of God that you give your full attention to and submit to as you submit to Him? Do you submit to the Bible as God's Word or do you expect it to submit to you and what you believe? Do you submit your thoughts and opinions to the judgment of the Bible so that when there's a conflict, you change? Or do you subject the Bible to your judgment, ignoring what you don't like and refusing to change? The first of those is trembling at God's Word. The second is dismissing His Word in favor of something else, usually yourself. That is the dividing line here between the genuine believer and the make-believer. So that third, understand that those who dismiss God's Word and choose their own way, they really do put their lives at great peril. Verses 3 to 5 get interesting. The prophet says, He, really God through the prophet, says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like... One who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Verse 3, admittedly, sounds kind of odd when you first read it if you don't understand what Isaiah is doing. What is Isaiah doing here? Well, he's, he's making a stark comparison. Coming off this thought that God's people are those who humbly tremble at His word with their eagerness to hear and obey it, he then contrasts that with those who ignore God's word and go through the motions of religion while they keep on doing their own thing. 
So notice in verse 3 how, how he is putting side by side things that God did indeed command Israel to do in worship over against things he told them they must never do. Things that were a violation of his word in exactly the way the pagans violated his word. And so, God commanded Israel to slaughter an ox in sacrifice in a number of occasions. But He never commanded them to slaughter a man as a human sacrifice. But the pagans did. Molech did. God commanded them to offer a lamb, a symbol ultimately of Christ, as an offering, but never a dog. For Israel, that was a blasphemous thought. But it's exactly what the pagans did. And right on through, Israel was to bring grain offerings. They were never to bring pig's blood. They were to make memorial offerings of frankincense, but never before an idol. And so what's he saying? He's saying to them, You are all going through the motions of worship as if you were a people who keep My Word. But the reality is you ignored My Word in your daily lives. Therefore, your very worship is as blasphemy to Me. You come into this place, He says, with the outward motions of reverence, yet you refuse to yield reverence to My Word. You live lives that contradict all that I've commanded. You don't fear that you've ignored My Word. In fact, you treat My Word as though it's nothing special. One more book on your shelf. And now you come thinking, I'm going to accept you because you're in My temple. No way! Your very presence, He tells Israel, is an abomination to Me. Proverbs 28, verse 9. I just stumbled across this in my readings this morning. It says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And so Isaiah says to them earlier in the book, he says, Who asks you to do this? Who asks you to come trampling up my courts like this with your worthless offerings? Verse 13 of Isaiah 1, he says, Stop it! Don't bring any more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. I can't stand your solemn assemblies. The vain, empty worship of a disobedient people is an offense to God. That's his point. God isn't served by mock worship. God honors a humble contrite, listening heart. Matthew 15, 8-9, Jesus Himself says, quoting Isaiah, this people, here's the problem, they honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching His doctrines the commandments of men. They ignore My Word and they follow men. So, so why does God consider their worship vain and empty? Explicitly, because they do not listen to His Word. Hear it again, halfway through verse 3. He says of them, These have chosen their own ways. That's what's wrong. Their soul delights in their abominations. They're doing whatever they want to do. And so I'm going to choose harsh treatment for them. I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. I'm going to bring their fears upon them. Why? Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. 
to ignore God's word and go your own way as our culture has done, including many who claim to be Christian today, to ignore God's word and do your own thing is, he uses the word, an abomination for those who claim to know God. I mean, do you see that? Huh. When you turn away from God's word, you don't turn nowhere. You always turn somewhere. And either you will turn from His Word back to the pagan culture around you and begin to disregard God in the same way they disregard God, verse 3 indicates, or you turn inward on yourself in order to be led by your own inward desires with the result that you begin to do evil in God's sight. Right? Isn't that what Jesus warned? As we read the Word, didn't Jesus warn us this very thing? Mark 7, 21-23, He said, For from within, if you look inside, I'm going to follow my heart. You know, that's what Mickey Mouse told me to do. I'm going to follow my heart. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they are what defiles a person. Without God's Word and God's Spirit bringing new life, this is where the human heart will go. That's what God is saying here. They've they've chosen their own way. Why? Because they don't know my way. And notice, it's not just a matter of bad behavior. Look at the end of verse 3 again. They have chosen their own ways. There's the bad behavior. Each man doing what is right in his own eyes. And their soul delights in their abominations. You see, it's not just the outward behavior that is corrupted by the absence of God's Word in our lives. It goes much deeper. The inward conscience itself is corrupted. That inner sense of who I am, of what is right and what is wrong, becomes fouled and corrupted by the sin that indwells the wicked heart. Their souls, he says, have lost all moral sensitivity and they've begun to delight in their abominations. I mean, what a word. That, that, that's a word there. Abomination is a really strong word, a word reserved in Scripture for those things that God truly hates, like the sacrifice of children on the altar of Moloch. It's an abomination, God says. Things so vile and wicked, so out of step with His will for mankind, that God detests them, that God is determined to rid the earth of them and all who cling to them. You hold fast to abomination on the day of judgment and you are in irredeemable trouble. That is where our world is right now, isn't it? Why? Because it refuses to tremble before God and His Word. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Paul says. No knowledge of God. No reverence for God. No seeking Him in His Word. So that a people left to themselves will plunge themselves into abominations. I was surprised to discover, I've forgotten this verse, that Jesus Himself says that. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Oh, He is to the repentant. But to the unrepentant? Luke 16, 15, He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. You want men to applaud you, so you're going to go with do what they do. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men... All those things that they're celebrating, what is exalted among men, is an abomination in the sight of God. 
Paul likewise in the first chapter of Romans, you remember he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them up to a debased mind to do those things they want to do that they ought not to do. So that looking inward, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips. Sounds like daytime television. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree because He put that in their hearts at creation, because there's this echo of righteousness even in our brokenness, because they know God's righteous commands that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only give their hearty approval to them, but practice them themselves. That's what was happening in Israel as Isaiah looks around. That's what he was seeing. That's what we're looking at, looking at today. So what is our hope? Verse 5. First two lines. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. There's our hope. It points us to Christ. He means hear with reverence, hear with understanding, hear with faith, hear with obedience. Give your full attention to Him as those who tremble at God's Word. And just notice, that this, is, this is pretty much a title for believers. You say to Isaiah, Isaiah, what is a believer? He'll say it's someone who trembles at God's Word. It's someone who receives it with reverence and faith leading to repentance and obedience. This particular form of this word is found six times in Scripture. Two of them are in Ezra's book where they are exactly a description of what it means to be a genuine believer. At a time when there were true believers and false believers throughout the kingdom and they were, there was this struggle between them, Ezra 9.5 says, All who trembled at the words of God gathered together to pray and fast and seek the Lord. That was the true church. Ezra 10 verse 3 says, Those who trembled at God's commands responded to them with repentance. Because you see, that's where trembling leads. It leads to that place of of reverence and obedience before God where we humbly receive His Word. It shapes us and brings us to Christ. brings us something else too, and I'll just mention this as our last thing. It also brings mockery before men. Do you notice that? End of verse 5. I stopped short. He says to His people, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word, you who are those that I've received graciously, you who are mine. Hear the word. Let it shape your life. Let it change you. Take it in. But at the same time, know this, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for My name's sake, they've said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see their, your joy. It's a mockery. They're mocking but it is they who shall be put to shame. Your brothers who hate you have cast you out, he says, will mock you. Those who reject God's Word and reject its authority, both among the secular crowd and also those who claim to be believers yet no longer honor God's Word, they will mock those who reveal it, who revere it. They will shame you for holding fast to it, for treasuring it, for believing it, for giving your attention to it so that your life is truly shaped by it. They will shame you in an attempt to silence you. But notice that last line. But it is they who shall be put to shame. When they stand before God's court. 
What is your attitude toward God's Word? That's the important question I want to leave in your mind. Is it reverence? Do you tremble at God's Word? I think it would be a really good question to begin your devotional time with, whether this afternoon, this evening, or in the morning. Do I tremble at God's Word? Do, do I know what that even is? And because you do, do you read it daily because you know that you must hear from Him? Again, Deuteronomy seventeen nineteen. O King, read this Word daily so that you tremble, so that your life is shaped by... Are you hiding this word in your heart that you might not sin against God? You see, if you fear sinning against God, then you will be ready to hide the word in your heart. Above all, are you looking for and finding a Savior there in Jesus so that you're beginning to walk with Him? Because the point of this, the point of all this, and Kyle started this there wonderfully with the Lord's Supper. The point of this isn't for you to say, oh my goodness, I don't tremble the Word. i got to get busy. i got to work hard. i got to work up some trembling. No, you don't work up some trembling. You go to Christ. You go to Christ for a new heart. You believe the Gospel. And then you let Him tell you what the Word is. And by the way, Jesus sees the Word as the very Word of His Father, which cannot be broken, which cannot be changed, which heaven and earth will pass away and not a bit of it will pass away. And so if I believe Jesus, I'm going to believe His view of the Word and I'm going to take the Word that He honored as the Father's Word, I'm going to honor it in my life and I'm going to follow Him according to the Word that He has given. Amen. Looking to Him by faith in the Gospel and being shaped and changed by the Word that He's given. I'm going to close with this from Psalm 91. The Psalms are another great place to go to get a reverence for the Word. Psalm 91, verse 14 to 16, says because it's God speaking to those who tremble at His Word. This is God speaking to you who tremble at His Word. He says, because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I'll protect Him because He knows my name. How do you know His name? You got that from the Word. When He calls, I'll answer to Him. I'll be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor Him because He honors me. With long life, I will satisfy Him stretching out into eternity and I will show Him my salvation. Lord God, we who believe have been incredibly blessed to not only have a salvation that comes through faith in Christ, but as a part of that salvation, undergirding it, running through it, and now putting the foundation under our feet to live in it, we have Your Word. You have spoken, and this is Your truth. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that You would give us hearts that are humble, contrite, and that tremble before Your every word, that Christ may be exalted in these lives for His sake, we pray. Amen.